John 9. All right, last Sunday I told you a whole bunch of reasons why I really love this time of the year, probably my favorite season of the year. Christmas gave you a whole litany of things why I really like this time. Uh, There was one thing I did not mention that I have a high degree of association with in this time of the year. It goes all the way back to December 1991. I was working for an insurance company, got some time off around Christmas. I was going to fly from Portland, Oregon to meet with my family who is now living in Florida for a time. And uh, I was really excited about this because once I returned from my Christmas vacation on New Year's Eve, I'd had it all planned out. I was going to ask this gal that I'd been dating since college if she would marry me. And so I thought I had about a 50% chance that Karina would say yes. And so I was really pumped up and, and very excited about this whole idea. I spent more money than I had and bought her a ring I couldn't afford. And, you know, everything was all kind of coming together. And you know how you have every once in a while, maybe in your life, where you just have a, a season or a time where it looks like it's all kind of coming together? Well, that's what it was like for me when I got onto a plane in Portland, Oregon, to fly to Florida. I was taking a red eye, was, was going to fly all night, land in Houston, pick up a different plane, get to Florida. I, don't, I wasn't even really probably planning on sleeping because uh, I was so pumped up and fired up, probably had too many Mountain Dews that day anyway. And so I show up at the airport, I get on the plane, and I sit down uh, in my assigned seat, and I am sitting next to a gal about my age, and you could just look at her and tell that she wasn't having the same kind of day that I was. In fact, as I got to talk with her a little bit, found out that she had left her job as an accountant. She felt like she was a total failure. Like a lot of people, uh, her whole identity was all wrapped up in her position, and uh, she had failed at her position, felt like a failure in life, and she was kind of going through an identity crisis. She was all upset, and she is, lo and behold, having to sit next to a guy who was all fired up. And so I could have said, you know, hey, don't worry about it. Life is going to get better. I could have sang her a line from that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I mean, how profound does that get? Uh, I could have said, you know, hey, I'll pray for you. But I sensed she, she needed hope. And there's really only one place you can find hope. So I said, you know, do you mind if I tell you a little bit of my story? And I shared with her how I had become a Christian while I was at the University of Oregon. And she seemed rather intrigued, started asking questions. I said, you know, I I have this like diagram. I have this line diagram. And so I drew out this diagram that explains the gospel of how you can come to truly know Christ and who Christ is and why he died for our sins and how you believe in him. And, And she seems very interested. I said, you know, if you really want to know who Christ is, you just need to see him from the pages of Scripture. And I said, you know, there's a particular chapter in the Bible that just does a great job of just showing clearly who Christ is. Do you mind if I just read that to you? And she goes, yeah, that, that'd be fine. So I got out my Bible, and I, we came to John chapter 9. If you are here today, and you really are wrestling with who Christ is, or perhaps you are a believer, but you need to have it reinforced who is Christ? You can't really do better than John chapter 9. And when you pick it up in John chapter 9, it fall, this, this particular event ha, ju- follows an amazing scene where Jesus had actually declared one of his most definitive statements as to his identity. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He says, 
I existed before Abraham, the father of the faith. And they were like, what? You know, you're like 30 years old. And he says, I am Ego Eimi. It is God's personal name. He actually declares that I am God himself. I am the self-existent one. That's why I was born before, I existed before Abraham. And how do you think the Jewish leadership was going to respond to that? We don't have to wonder. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It is uh, following this scene, Jesus and his disciples are making their way from the temple. You could just feel the electricity in the air that we encounter him. You see him actually in verse 1 of chapter 9, that as he passed by, Jesus is passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, you need to understand that to be born blind, blind means that you have never seen anyone or anything. I mean, you could just even where you're sitting, seated, uh, just close your eyes for a few seconds and imagine that's all you knew. You knew darkness. You could kind of sense that there's some sort of light if you were facing the sun, but everything you knew came from touching, whether it be a pool or a chair or someone's hand or someone's face Your imagination, though it exists, is extremely limited because you have nothing of sight to actually compare it to. Uh, You would learn how to communicate and to speak, but you were always feeling and groping your way around things. And people would try to explain things, but they didn't make sense because you could never really see things. And this was life for you. And for this man, just like probably many people who had been born blind, he grew up in a home and his parents learned that very difficult process of caring for someone who has a a congenital uh, disability. They did the best they could. He was highly dependent upon those whom he loved and whom loved him. And and so for everything he needed, from food, clothing, any sort of heat, uh, warmth, if he hurt himself, it was always reliant upon people who loved him, and he would just simply say, help me. He certainly didn't learn how to read, he didn't play games like other boys. He would never learn a trade. He, all he could do is simply say, help me. His life was reduced to a, to a bare minimum. And then there came a day, we don't know what would happen, whether the parents passed away or simply, we simply can't care for you anymore, that this man would then have to learn how to care for himself as one who is blind. Before, his blindness had kept him from people. Now he'd be utterly dependent upon especially strangers. Hopefully he could find some association of of people who would help him as he simply called out with a beggar's cry, help me. And so his day would begin. He probably slept on a dirty mat. He would wake up. He'd stretch. Of course, there was all darkness. He'd try to feel his way around. He'd pick up his mat and shake it. He'd probably be wearing greasy garments, but that's all you have. You have nothing. You have no way of making a living. You'd make your way to a place where you felt like people would be charitable. And this man living in Jerusalem would go, he'd probably hang out around the Temple Mount because people who would come from worshiping God might be more prone to be charitable if you're standing there. And he would simply utter that cry, help me, help me. In fact, it was two words that just seemed to define his life. Now, the people of Israel were supposed to care for people who were blind. 
But they kind of ignored what they read in Leviticus about blind people, and actually people that were blind were stigmatized, both culturally and religiously. The idea was that if you, had, if you were born blind, there must be some pretty serious sin that had taken place. In fact, that's exactly how the disciples of Jesus thought. Look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, as they're making their way off the mount, they asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher or master, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. The disciples, you know, they're, they weren't like overly interested in compassion. To them, this blind man was a theological riddle. Who, who sinned? Jesus? This man? Or his parents, that he would be born blind. Now, you need to understand that they thought that if, if a parent sinned, that ha- that person's parents' sin could have a carryover value where that, pers- that, that child would have lifetime implications. And in their theology, that kind of worked that way. But they also believed that, that you could actually the sin even before you were born and that somehow that that would create this disability. And you're going, wow, how in the world do you get to thinking like that? And the rabbis did it by going back to Genesis chapter 25. You remember Jacob and Esau when they're wrestling in Rebekah's womb and they're, they're wrestling? The rabbi said that Esau sinned in his mother's womb. And so they, they basically took that and they said, it is possible that an infant in a, person, a mother's womb could actually sin and therefore face a curse and face lifelong implications of that sin. The disciples don't even care that this, this man hears their statements. He'd heard these words probably hundreds of times. Who sinned? This guy or his parents? And Jesus, though, Jesus is going to straighten out their theology in a rather radical way. Now, I want to tell you something. Your sin, my sin, can have real implications, physical implications. Remember in Acts chapter 5, that couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold this piece of land and they posed themselves, they made it under the guise that they were going to give all this money for the furthering of the kingdom of God. But in actuality, they were going to hold back some, but they were coming across as they'd, they'd given it all. And you remember what God did? He actually judged them, and that couple died because of their deceit. God is sending a message. I'm not going to be trifled with. I take giving significantly more important than you are if you feel like you can kind of pose off that you're some sort of great giver when in actuality you're not, and you try to deceive people. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when there, there's a recount of the people of Israel when they were in the Exodus and they had left Egypt and making their way to the promised land. And you remember they created that golden calf and they had this huge orgy where there was all sorts of sexual immorality going on. And it says that 20, 23,000 people died as a result of their immorality. God brought about judgment. I'm bringing you to be my promised people and that is not in keeping with it. And you did it in front of my face and 23,000 people died. Or in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, do you remember that there, was a, there were people in the church that took communion totally flippantly? 
Like, yeah, 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 this represents the body of Jesus, his blood, whatever. And, and in 1 Corinthians 11, it says there are a number that have died. They are asleep, a euphemism for death, because they didn't take me seriously. You need to know that, you know, if you sow particular seeds, you're going to reap consequences. If you give yourself over to anger and hatred or substance abuse or, or sexual license, there can be very real implications to your sin. But on the other hand, you need to remember that we are a fallen people living in a fallen world. We are all in Adam. We live on the consequences of the curse of being in a fallen race. And we have diseases and there are disabilities because life and this world are not as God intended because of the entrance of sin. Now, one day, sin is going to be eradicated from this world and there will not be any of the implications of sin. But in this present time, until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, there are implications of the fall. But it's not a particular cause and effect. Most cases, the reason why we have physical illnesses, or even death is not because we've done something sinful. It's rather it's because we live in a, in a sinful world and we're part of a sinful humanity. And so Jesus is going to introduce to them what real theology is. Jesus says in verse 3, he answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, it's not a matter of this man sinning or his parents sinning. The reason that he has this particular disability, it is for the glory of God. I want you to pay close attention to what Jesus has to say. Perhaps you face an illness or some sort of disability, or there is some sort of debilitating factor in your life. Did you know that God has allowed this for his glory. He plans to demonstrate his grace, his power, his strength, and his presence through such a disability. And so he says, you know, you're thinking about this all wrong. This is neither that the man sinned or his parents. It's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And look at verse 4. You might want to underline the very first word. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. We, he didn't say, I must do the works. He's including his disciples because he's training them to carry on his mission of the proclamation of the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel of Christ. And he says, we must do it. We must do it while it is still day. Night is coming when they're going to actually whip me, beat me, crucify me, and put me in a tomb. Night is coming when no one shall work. But he says in verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While I am here, the light of God is shining as brilliant as it ever will be because I am him. I am the promised Messiah. I am the I am. And he says, I am the light of the world and we must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Now, they're listening to all of this and they're trying to make sense of what is, what is taking place here. And so Jesus will show who he really is and what his mission is all about. Look at verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground 
He made clay of the spittle, and he applied the clay to his eyes, and he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed, and he came back seeing. Now, this is absolutely staggering. Here's a blind man. He's saying, help me, help me. He overhears the disciples going, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus spits on the ground, and he puts his clay in this man's eyes, and he says, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. I want you to wash. So this man obeys. He has no idea what is going on. He makes his way. Likely he had been to the pool of Siloam many times. In fact, we have a picture. Uh, this is what the pool of Siloam looks like at present here. Uh, on this one over here on the left and on the right here, this is an artist rendition of what it looked like in the time of Jesus about 2,000 years ago. Uh, it would have been a significant place, a lot of gathering. The, the blind man would have likely have been there multiple times. He goes and he obeys. He is kind of like the king of Aram who had come to Elisha who had needed uh, healing from leprosy. The, Elisha said, well, I want you to go and bathe yourself in the Jordan River. Do that seven times. And he does. Well, so this man does what Jesus says and he comes back seeing. Do you see that in verse 7? And you've got to imagine the scene. I mean, here's the guy. He's been born blind. Of course, he's, he's kind of like a fixture there. He's always saying, help me. He's always in his greasy rags. He always can't see. He always needs help. And now he comes back, and he's like, I can see. I, I can see. And, and you're you. And he recognizes voices, and he's touching people. But, but now he can see, and they're like, wait a second here. Wait. This isn't, this isn't happening. You're blind. What, 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 what's going on? And so look at this. Verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Isn't this not the, the one who used to sit and beg? I mean, look at this guy. He sees. Others are saying, uh, This is he. Still others were saying, No, that's impossible. You don't, you're not born blind and you end up seeing. That's impossible. But you're, he's like him. Like, really, really like him, okay? And he kept saying, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm the one. I am the one. Yeah. The, the one that's always saying, help me because I'm blind? Guess what? I, I can see now. I've got some mud on, on his face. You've got to see the delight. I mean, just his jaw, just in awe. I mean, he has never seen before. Now, everything he sees, it's all new. Things which were great puzzles to him. Well, all of a sudden, he's taken back by the grandeur of the temple and the faces and, and what faces really, really look like. He's, he's seeing now for the first time. And they said, verse 10, they were saying to him, well, then, well, how were your eyes open? How did that happen? And verse 11, he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and he anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I, I went away and I washed and I received sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? I mean, he said, I don't know. I was, I was blind the last time I left him. I, I, I don't know. They're asking him all these questions, and how did you see? I mean, they're absolutely blown away. Now, enter to the scene the Pharisees. They, are, they enter the scene, and I want you to see what unbelief really looks like. They're going to help us to understand the nature of unbelief. I want you to see how they are unmoved by the facts. Look at this, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. The Pharisees are a small but a highly influential group of Jewish people. They follow 
all of the laws. They try to strictly follow them. In fact, they try so hard that they have all their additional laws and traditions that they piled onto the laws that are supposed to help them keep the laws. They're extremely legalistic. They themselves can't actually keep all the laws, but they see themselves as judges of everybody else. And so if you've ever been around people that are legalistic, uh, they, they have all these rules that they're trying to follow to earn God's favor. They're a misery to be around. And they are miserable people, even though they try to fake act like they're somewhat joyful. Well, these Pharisees, they bring this blind man, who's now can see, to the Pharisees. And, it's, and they actually, the Pharisees in synagogues, they kind of function like a small claims court. Okay, if this is a formal charge, it'd be brought to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. So they they bring this to the Pharisees because they know that the Pharisees would be very interesting, interested in a particular case where someone who is blind, who can now see. But then verse 14, there is a key fact that is given. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened the eyes. All right, what are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? Rest. All right? And the Pharisees, man, they had defined rest, like all the things that you couldn't do. Let me, let me tell you some of the things that were on their list. For instance, on the Sabbath day, you couldn't knead clay. Okay? So like you can't play with Play-Doh. You can't make a bowl while you're sitting there. You can't do any of that because that is, that kneading this like that, or even spitting on the ground and making clay, that would be considered a work. If you did that, you're sinning. If you're sinning, you're a sinner. So obviously you don't want to do that. Let me give you something else that was on their list of rules. You could not anoint a person's eyes on the Sabbath. You know why? That's a work. Another thing you couldn't do, you couldn't offer healing or help to an individual medically unless it was absolutely necessary and imperative to save their life. So this guy had been, been born blind. He'd been blind for a long time. Didn't he need healing on that day, on a Sabbath day? like, no way. And that's, that's what's taking place. All of this took place on the Sabbath. Verse 15, then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. You ask me, I just tell you exactly the way it is. And how do you think they're going to respond to this? Verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. We know one thing, that this man can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath like we are. Okay, we're holy. We got it right. I mean, people think that way, right? And so if he's not like us, he must be wrong. But others, though, were saying, how can a man who is a sinner, like you keep calling him, perform such signs? I mean, these major miracles... And there was a division among them. Among the Pharisees now, there had been a division because Jesus kept, keeps doing miracles, and now he has done a miracle of bringing sight to a blind man, and they can't explain it away. And this man just gives a very simple testimony. And half of them want to say he's an absolute sinner, but there maybe have been like Joseph and Marathia or Nicodemus among them. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Remember he told Jesus that? We know this, that no one can do the signs that you do, Jesus, unless God is with them. And so they're like, 
he's a sinner because he's breaking the Sabbath. And like, uh, well, yeah, but what if he's God? Then he is the God of the Sabbath because no one does things like this. And there is this huge division among them. And so then they're like, all right, we'll talk to the blind man again. Mind you, this guy has just started seeing. Maybe this is his first hour. I mean, everything is new. And they keep wanting him to see their angry faces. And so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, what do you say about this man, Jesus? And they're not going to like this. Look at verse 17. And he said, he is a prophet. Whoa, a prophet. Okay, he's gone from a man. Jesus is the man. Now he's a prophet. Now, the prophets of Israel, some of them did some pretty significant miracles. Moses, Elijah, Elisha. And now this man is saying, he's a prophet. Well, that's the last thing that the Jews, the Jewish leadership wanted to hear. There are some very important reasons that you need to know why the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sanhedrin were against Jesus being known as the Messiah. Let me give you one of them. The Pharisees understood that they would lose their privileged position as spiritual authorities if people identified Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Let me give you another reason. They themselves refused to believe that he is the Messiah. He didn't fit their bill. And frankly, even though they said they were waiting for the Messiah, they had a system in place that wasn't ready for the Messiah. And so they just said, it's blasphemy to call anyone the Messiah. But there is another thing that you need to remember. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, the Jewish leadership was very fearful of the implications of the people calling Jesus the Messiah, the King. They were worried because of the implications of what Rome would do to their nation. In John chapter 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000, the people themselves were so overwhelmed that Jesus was the prophet, the Messiah, that they actually wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. In fact, Jesus even says he perceived that this is what they want to do, and he actually went away from them. Well, the Jews were very fearful that that's what they were going to try to do. And if that happened, Rome would come down really heavy because they were not interested in any king or any emperor other than who? Caesar. And if, you, if the Jews said, you know what, we're at the far edge of the Roman Empire, but we got our own king, his name is Jesus, that would have been disaster, and they wanted nothing of it. And so, though, these, these Jews, these Pharisees, they're unmoved by the facts. That's what unbelief is like. But let me show you something else. They were unwilling to trust in what is demonstrated to be true. So, they, so they, what they're going to try to do now is the Jews are going to try to discredit this miracle. The Jews, verse 18, they did not believe it of him and that he had been born blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? So they bring the parents in. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to discredit this miracle. What they're saying is like, Somehow Jesus orchestrated this event where he had two beggars, one's blind, one's not, but they look a lot alike. And he had one blind, and he made it look like he did a miracle, and he swapped it out for the other. 
That's what they're trying to do. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Probably not going to go over it, but that's what they're after. So they bring the parents in, and boy, do they put the screws to their parents. They said to his parents, all right, is this your son? Then how does he now see? And his parents are extremely fearful. Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We cannot deny that. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He's of the age of accountability. He's over the age of 13. He will speak for himself. And let me show you why they were acting this way. Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They were afraid that they would be excommunicated, to be put out of the synagogue, to be excommunicated, meaning that you would lose your religious life, your civil life, your recreational life, your social life. Your identity was wrapped up in that synagogue. To be excommunicated, meaning you had no job, you had no one to trade with, you have no friends, you have no place to worship. And so they said, anybody that says that Jesus is the Messiah you're going to be excommunicated. And they put, and that was an extremely heavy pressure on these people. Now, they're asking, that's why they're saying, hey, you just ask him. Uh, He's of age. We confirm the fact that he is our son and he's born blind. Well, watch unbelief. They are unwilling to trust even when it is demonstrated to be true. Verse 24, so a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. When they say give glory to God, it's a statement that is made to, that's like to say, tell the truth like you formerly haven't been telling the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. Well, listen to this, this man who is formerly blind. He then answered, well, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Okay. How many times have you heard this question over and over? He keeps hearing the same question. How did he do it? Who did this? And he says, he's kind of exasperated. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things he'd rather be looking at than them and them yelling at him and asking these same questions. Well, he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then look at this. I'm sure they're going to love this. You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Oh, I get it. The reason you keep asking me is because you want to become a disciple of Jesus. Is that it? And he throws that at them. Well, they're going to have a volcanic eruption. Just watch. They just, they just come unglued. Verse 28. They reviled him. They literally, they curse at him. They hurl insults at him. They They assassinate his character. They revile him, and they say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Okay, and they make this huge statement. We're disciples of Moses, not this guy. And then he says, verse 20, they, they say this, verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Now, this is really interesting, this statement that they make in verse 29. They say, we know that God has spoken to Moses. But Jesus in John 5, 46 had actually said this. For if you believed Moses, you would believe 
me, for he wrote about me. Jesus had already told them, listen, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. The Old Testament, the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they are speaking and pointing to Messiah. And Jesus says, Moses wrote about me, and I'm now standing in your midst. If you say you believe Moses, which is the card they're playing, and he says, you really, you need to believe in me. And when they say we don't know where he is from, in John 6, just a few chapters earlier, verse 38, he had already told him, he said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. You want to know where I'm from? I know that my wisdom is confounding you and my miracles have got you completely perplexed. Do you really want to know? He says, I am from heaven. And yet, they're in total denial. They say, we don't even know where he's from. We don't know where he's from. We just know that God has spoken to Moses, and yet they're denying the fact that Moses spoke of him. And look at verse 30. This man may have been blind all his life up to this point, but he is definitely insightful and intelligent. Verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. This is a really key statement because of all the miracles that occur in the Bible throughout the entire Old Testament, there was never once a miracle of someone who had been born blind who had been miraculously then given sight to see. And it's very interesting that when Messiah comes, his miracle par excellence is that he would give sight to the blind. In the book of Isaiah, three different times, it speaks that the servant, when God's Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. It is like this is the one clear radical miracle that is to authenticate to the world Messiah is here. When Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. And the blind man is now starting to see that he is created for the glory of God. And he says, it's never occurred that a person now can see who had been formerly blind. And so he says, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He must be from God because he is doing the work that only God can do. And how are they going to handle this? Verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. And so they put him out. You know what they did? They excommunicated him. They literally threw him out. They had a formal procedure about what they're to follow. They totally disregarded that. They had nothing to do with the truth of the matter. You always find that with unbelief, by the way. No matter whether they consider themselves religious professors or they're involved in other churches, but they really don't believe that Jesus is God or the miracles of the Bible, they come with a predisposition and a preset mode. It can't be true. Even when faced with the facts and the truth, 
they will simply disregard it. That's what you find here. They throw him out, and they notice what they said. You were born entirely in your sins. They say the exact opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus said, actually, it has nothing to do with this man's sins or his parents. But they assign him this position that you are a sinner. Pretty interesting. Think of this blind man. In a single day, he went from an outcast, a disabled outcast, to a celebrity who had been miraculously healed and now given sight, to a witness in a court where he is treated like a criminal. And the day isn't even over, and now he is once again made an outcast. It might seem that his life has even become bleaker because now he's going to be disaffiliated with the Jewish people. He won't be able to find employment. I mean, all of his hopes have been completely dashed by these statements of these Pharisees. Get out of here. You're a sinner and you're gone and never come back. But I want you to see the heart of the Savior. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. They'd excommunicated him and finding him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I'll tell you, that is the heart of the Savior. He was always searching and seeking out his own. He sought him out, he found him, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is that messianic title that brings to mind Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that great messianic vision where the Son of God is coming in all of his glory and his splendor. The Son of Man. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, it's probably his favorite title, he used it about 80 times, he not only identifies fully with humanity, but he shows that he is also the fully God. He is the promised coming one. He says to this blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And verse 36, he answered, who is he? Lord, that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. You see. This is the first day he's ever heard that statement. You've seen him. He's never seen anything before until today. You not only see him, but he is the one talking to you. I am him. I am God in the flesh. And look at verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe I believe, and he worshiped him. You see, when you see Jesus for who he really is, you were drawn to worship him with your life. When you see him for who he really is, you were drawn to worship. That is why this man bows down and he literally worships Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And Jesus then makes this statement. He said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You see, Jesus is the great divider of all humanity. If you come as someone who is spiritually blind, and you are broken because your sin, you actually see Jesus, the Savior, the one who dies and pays the penalty of your sin, the resurrected one. You see him for who he is, and your life is led to worship. But if on the other hand that you say, ah, I don't need Jesus, I don't need God, I'm fine, I see spiritually, I got my own path of spirituality, I'm okay. If that is your mindset, then you are actually blind. And it explains a lot 
about your life, specifically your response to Jesus, what, which is, no, I'll not believe him as God. I might consider him a good man, or I might even consider him a prophet, or the greatest man that ever lived, but I'm not going to bow down and worship him. Even though you say you see in actuality, you are spiritually blind. You see, Jesus is the great divider, and he brings a great judgment. So then, notice this, verse 40. There's some Pharisees that were tagging along, and they were watching, watching this. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. If you would have just, just acknowledged the fact that you can't see, I would open your eyes so that you would see me and you would know forgiveness of sins because you would know me and I am the propitiation for your sins. But because you say that you see and you reject me in actuality, you are blind. You know, for this guy who had lost everything, but now he can see, his physical sight is just merely speaking of the great spiritual sight that he has because he now has Christ. And I can tell you this, you seeing Jesus and worshiping him as such, where it actually starts changing your life, there may be some hardship and consequences. You may not make all your family members happy. There'll be some friends of yours and some coworkers and think that you're a little bit crazy and you're out. They might put some pressure on you. They might call you names. You might just kind of feel the cold shoulder, but let me assure you, when you have Jesus, don't consider your loss. Consider the gain of knowing him. And when you see him for who he is, you start worshiping him with your lives. You join in his mission. You are about his work. You start gaining his, his priorities. You, you read his word with interest because you see Jesus in the pages of Scripture. You actually give to him because why? Because he's worthy of your worship. You give him your time. You start making investments. You actually serve others. You actually love others. Why? Because he's worthy of your worship. And this Christmas, I just want to ask, do you really see? You see, when you see Jesus as Lord, let me tell you, you will worship him with your lives. Are, is there really a worship of Christ? I, I want you to take just a minute and answer that question. Is there anything about your life that speaks of the fact that you're a worshiper of Christ? Think about your prayer life. Do you, do you read? Do you sing? Do you give? Do you do work? Are you involved in his ministry? Do you ever share the gospel? Do you ever disciple anyone? Is there anything about your life that speaks of worship of Christ? I can just tell you this. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you will worship him with your lives. And this is the work of God, is to draw people into the worship of his Son. And if God has opened your eyes to see his Son, he has done so for this purpose, so that the works of God may be displayed in your life. Works of God like you give testimony of his transforming grace in your life. Works of God, like you live your life in such a way that it is evident that your eyes are open, that you see Jesus for who he is. You believe, you see him on the pages of scripture, and you gladly worship him. You're involved in his mission. We must do the works of him who sent us. So let me just ask you, have your eyes been opened? Remember that gal that I told you about at the beginning? Uh, 
Well, our plane eventually did hit Houston, um, deboarded, got off, figured out where my next connecting flight was. She figured out where she was, and I said, well, I guess I'll see you later. And uh, she said something to me that I will never forget. She looked me in the eyes. She goes, I'll see you in heaven. And she turned and she walked away. And friends, that's what it's like. Eyes that behold the wonders of Christ in this life will see the glories of Christ in the life to come. And when we see Jesus as Lord, we will worship him with our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the amazing truth of your word. And Father, if there's someone here today who has never placed their trust and faith in Christ, Lord, would they pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and my sin, and I believe in Christ. Lord, guide and direct my life. Lord, save me, I am yours. And for the rest of us, I pray, Father, that in this Christmas season, that you would give us eyes to see Christ more clearly, that our lives might be defined with the joyous worship of knowing him and serving him. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.